Digital Health at Harvard series, um, which is actually pretty new. It was launched last year, um, and it's a collaboration between the Berkman Klein Center and our neighbors upstairs, Petrie Bloom, um, to bring together collaborators uh, from different schools at Harvard, even the surrounding communities, uh, to discuss important topics related to digital health. And so today we have Dr. Adrian Gropper joining us. Um, Dr. Gropper is, has many, has many, many years of experience in the field of health-centered and, and uh, sorry, patient-centered and patient-controlled uh, health records. And so today he'll be delivering a talk on free and independent health records. Um, he's the CTO of Patient Privacy Rights um, and has a variety of experience, which I'm sure you can highlight in, really, in relation to your talk. So thank you all for joining. And um, just in terms of the format. Uh, Dr. Gropper will give about a 20-minute um, talk, and then we'll have about 40 minutes for discussion. Perfect. Uh, thank you. We, uh, <coughs> so uh, I'm going to talk about work that, uh, that's been ongoing for a number of years. Uh, it actually goes, uh, originates in uh, the computer science department, what uh, at MIT as the Guardian Angel Project maybe about uh, 30 years ago. And uh, myself and many of the people that have worked on health records in general in this country, uh, around at least this part of the country, uh, go back to uh, to Pete Solowitz's lab uh, at MIT in those days. I think uh, Richard was down the hall uh, around that time, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Um, and this is all about uh, personal. Uh, this is all about looking at technology from the personal or the individual's point of view, as opposed to the institutional point of view. So let me start with something very personal, and and the anecdote to sort of frame our uh, our conversation later. This is my granddaughter. She's about to be three months old, Chloe. And more important uh, uh, on the on the left there is my mom. Um, that's the fourth generation of us here. And uh, great-grandma is 91. Uh, she's healthy, quite healthy, but uh, reasonably demented. She lives in a condo uh, with a living caregiver. It's 200 miles away. Uh, and I basically need to monitor her interactions with the healthcare system. A uh, couple of times a year, she goes to see a new doctor. Uh, the doctor has that paper clipboard that we all are very well aware of, and the paper clipboard has the information that we all know in terms of health records. And I'll just focus on the medication list, the active medication list. And we're going to come back to this theme of what's fair, what's reasonable, who's expected to manage this very important component of, of my mom's life, and uh, what can we do to improve it. Because if you've ever been in this position, and I suspect some of you uh, have, uh, there's nobody responsible for maintaining that active medi medication list. And not only that, but there isn't any particular tools available to either the physicians or the uh, patients or the family to do it. And that's where this is going. So, uh, which other industry uses a paper clipboard? <laughs> uh, exactly. So um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll talk for probably 20 minutes, maybe less. Uh, there are not very many slides. And I do hope to then come back and dig into the various points that I'm going to skip very quickly over during the initial presentation uh, to, um, to figure out where people want to dig in and go deeper. Uh, some of what I'm talking about is quite technical. Uh, I assume that uh, this audience is quite technical. But uh, if there are terms or acronyms that people need to explain, do, do stop me at least for, for that. So I'm going to basically frame this as an issue of fairness, fairness to the individual person. Um, I'm going to draw out how person-centered technology or person-centered solutions might, might look, uh, talk a little bit about uh, self-sovereign technology, uh, policy questions to enable self-sovereign technology, and where what's being done and what can be done is next steps. Uh, that was not supposed to happen. Where did it go? I should probably 
Okay, so um, this is the data map. This is work uh, led by uh, Latanya Sweeney. She's a professor at the School of Government, uh, Patient Privacy Rights, uh, uh, helped uh, support this work originally, and it's now uh, the subject of a Knight Foundation grant to update it. Uh, up at the top, if you can't read it, you have you, the patient, in the middle, and uh, either a physician or a hospital to the right. And what the takeaway from this very complicated, and this is not by any means the end of the story diagram, is that from that physician-patient relationship flows an immense amount of information none of which people are aware of, uh, almost none of it. I mean, you do get an EOB from the insurance company, for example, et cetera. And all of the nodes in that diagram are institutions. Um, we have all probably seen this diagram. It made a resurgence with uh, the rise of blockchain, uh, Bitcoin technology, and whatnot. And so if you want to think of this in terms of health records, on the left, you have systems in like the European systems, uh, Australia, where uh, because healthcare is a right and the system is highly, uh, is, is basically paid for, uh, for the significant part of it, people don't think of it in terms of insurance at all, uh, there is a large centralized component to whatever health records are in place. In the middle, we have the decentralized uh, uh, diagram, relatively speaking, similar to what we have here in this country, except it almost overstates the connectivity between the islands, uh, if anything. And we won't necessarily need to talk much about that. And on the right, we have the distributed model, where the nodes can be any piece of technology. Uh, and so the nodes could represent an individual's technology, an individual licensed practitioner's technology, uh, uh, a lab's technology as a licensed entity, or a hospital in, in the sense of a, a care team or an institution. Uh, so again, let's just to frame the issue and not belabor the details of this. Uh, uh, Physician-patient relationships existed long before we had uh, digital health records. And uh, they had this characteristic uh, represented by a prescription here or uh, their uh, surgeon's uh, report of a procedure that might involve a whole team of people, but it was basically a document, and it had certain things. It was authoritative. It might be uh, uh, tracked with a DEA number. It had identifiers in it and, uh, and uh, signatures, uh, non-reputable signatures. So as we start to think about how we would set up a fair system that's uh, fair to the individuals involved and fair to the professionals involved, um, we look at this node, like the one I've isolated on the right, and we say, if this is an individual person, this node has to support self-sovereign technology in the free sense of the word and in the independent sense of the word. And other nodes in the system could be labs, could be hospitals, could be pharmacies. And one point that I think we'll come back to uh, in the conversation, because I'm just going to go very quickly over it, is it's obvious that the nodes exchange attributes, exchange data uh, as part of a network. What's not so obvious is that in order to be free and independent, the individual's node has to shield, has to hide the individual's policies. Just like nobody asks you to basically declare whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or gay or straight or whatever, you get to act the way you want to act in context. Uh, you, your policies for moving data from that lab, from that hospital uh, to um, another node in the network uh, should not be, have to be put on the wire. And therefore, the in, important sort of revelation or the, uh, of the design of, of what at least uh, we've been working on is this idea that you want to distribute access tokens in some standardized and acceptable way and not put policies on the wire. And that obviously means that information can move directly from a lab to a hospital, for example, uh, without necessarily going through a personal data store, a personal health record, or anything else. So let me um, just go down one more level now and talk about hardware and, and software, uh, you know, 
software will directly tie to the hardware. And it basically, from the self-sovereign technology point of view, there's going to be three different categories. Uh, one of them is the router, the, the thing that sits in your closet, costs 50 or 200 bucks nowadays. And uh, it's obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but in, if it's free software, and many of them are, uh, and it's owned, and you don't assume that your router is linked to any particular institution uh, or controlled by any particular entity. Um, though it's going to be a fight to keep that thing going forward, but that's a different story. Um, so in order to support this kind of uh, distributed uh, health records environment, the router has to be enhanced. Uh, I've already mentioned the need for something that looks like an authorization server, and there are standards, the UMA standard up on the upper right hand for handing out these access uh, tokens, these authorization tokens. It needs to be supportable uh, by mortals, and that's the Freedom Box project of the Free Software Foundation. We can talk a little bit about that. That's going uh, well. Uh, it will need some kind of a personal data store for that part of the health record that you do want to aggregate on your own. You, you don't want to leave it sitting in that lab or that hospital where it originated for whatever privacy reasons or they might go offline or whatever. And to be truly um, truly distributed, you might want it to run something that looks like a blockchain node for, again, fairly obvious reasons. And you will see blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology thread in and out of the rest of this presentation for uh, in various ways. Um, the router obviously doesn't have a native user interface. It, there has to be something like that. Typically, nowadays, people think in terms of a smartphone. Um, the smartphone has a, a browser, which is how you control that freedom box and the authorization server and, uh, and other things. Uh, the mobile client uh, has to have a, um, a secure element. Uh, that doesn't expose your private key, that allows you to have a non-repudiable signature, uh, especially if you're a licensed practitioner. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, in many cases, to do it conveniently and at scale, you want to link that secure element to biometrics. And I don't mean biometrics that somebody else keeps in the cloud. I mean biometrics that is simply local to that uh, device, to that secure element. And finally, you might want to have something like a, a blockchain client for uh, obvious reasons. And then finally, you're going to have things. And the things might be in three categories. You, there are things that are literally implanted, implantable cardiac defibrillators, uh, uh, neurostimulators uh, for Parkinson's, uh, for example, or epilepsy. Um, uh, the wearables might be uh, like a continuous glucose monitor linked to an insulin pump. Uh, I put up the Night Scout uh, project there, which has uh, been running for six, seven years, and is just a wonderful example of, uh, of how to do this way ahead of uh, industry and in a, in a very powerful way. We can talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, you have the other things, home monitors and other aspects of the Internet of Things. Uh, sort of now going back in the direction of what's at the next level and what kind of policy issues uh, are going to be uh, raised by, by this approach, uh, you have these other elements that, that result in a free and independent health record, right? You, you have the ability to aggregate information in, in a place that is well understood. Right now, in this country, we certainly don't have that. Uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, personal health records have been around for almost a decade now, and they are not, they, they have not had an economic or health impact by any measure. Uh, mostly they're unusable by the licensed practitioners, and they ask individual people to do stuff that they're just not interested or trained or capable of doing. So, but the need for uh, having a source of truth and one that, again, represents that particular individual is, uh, remains. They have to be curated. Uh, we all, uh, well, not we all, but those of you who have worked with electronic health records of the last six years and, and beyond realize that what's happening, because they're basically billing mechanisms that have been glorified or resource management uh, systems, uh, they, uh, 
they're not properly curated from the individual's perspective. They may be curated from the institutional perspective. They serve the workflow and, uh, and the economic needs of the institution. They're a strategic asset in that sense. But from the individual's point of view, uh, none of them allow, for example, for a licensed practitioner, physician not affiliated with that particular institution that happens to be holding that particular <coughs> electronic health records to sign in and make a change. So uh, literally, when you go one step lower, and we can, don't want to necessarily go there, when you look at the standards now that are being used to interconnect those nodes in the decentralized, that middle diagram, the standards that people are working on cannot support a medication list. There, there is no command you can issue to that RESTful API, to that RESTful interface that says, give me the active medication list. So not only is there no way for a licensed practitioner to, to log in and make a change or, or curate a document in that system, but the standard for moving the data around doesn't even have that as a, as a, uh, as a command. Uh, they have to be authoritative, uh, right? What exactly do you mean by curated? What I mean by curated is that somebody is being paid to delete a medication and say, this is no longer active, or to say this person isn't really allergic to peanuts. They, they thought they were. Uh, that, that is what I mean by curated. That's something that uh, is not a workflow issue directly. Uh, you know, it's not a billing issue directly, but it is a, from the patient's perspective or from my perspective as, uh, as the caregiver. Uh, that is central. Uh, you know, the, the usefulness of what's on that clipboard that I started to talk about is what's important to both the physician and to the patient. Uh, so because in a self-sovereign uh, environment um, you have this opportunity for the patient to touch the information, in order for it to be authoritative, in order for it to have legal uh, usefulness in certain cases and professional usefulness, things have to be signed. And in the system that we have right now with the institutional health records, that is absolutely not done. And we'll get a little bit of more about that in the next slide. Or the next, I think it's the last slide. So that's what I mean by authoritative. Uh, there are legal aspects to this. The signatures have to be non-repudiable. Uh, Timestamps have to be accessible and recognized uh, in the case of a dispute, and, uh, and there are uh, records retention laws that have to be met. So just because we're making free independent health records doesn't mean that any of these things disappear. And, uh, and finally, uh, for all sorts of obvious and good reasons, they have to we have to keep supporting and expanding certain mandated registries, the, the kind of things that are used right now to uh, deal with uh, opioid prescribing practices, the kind of things uh, for monitoring infectious disease, public health, um, things that drive policy. Uh, all payer claims databases are now around and in many forms. And again, these are not accessible to the individual, even though they really should be when you're paying $5,000 out of pocket. Uh, for some of the health plans these days, that information would save you thousands of dollars a year in, in the exchanges. And obviously, uh, and there's a lot of uh, work and regulation happening in the research and quality monitoring areas, and uh, that those become topics in themselves. Uh, so as we begin this discussion of how do we pull this stuff together, and what are the communities, and the and the business models, frankly, that uh, are going to enable something like this going forward. Uh, one way I like to think about it is you want to build API on APIs from the start. We, we don't have information systems, not just in healthcare, but in general. Uh, things are still either document-centric or, or database-centric. Um, and uh, I think that is not going to be able sustainable for any number of reasons, including security and cybersecurity that uh, we're seeing so much in the news about. So it's, it's APIs all the way down. Um, so on the policy side, we can talk about these uh, four or six things. Um, where does policy uh, consider fairness to the individual? Um, curation, uh, we, we talked about briefly already what I mean by that. Uh, 
I want to propose a very simple test. How do we know that we've gotten there? How do we measure success if we've built this distributed infrastructure? One test that I think is the single best way to, to ask yourself if you succeeded is if you can provide both the patient and the physician independent decision support at the point of care during that 10-minute encounter, 20-minute encounter. And not, by the way, the same decision support, but the patient, um, my mom or me in this case of, of our example, needs to be able to have the benefit of IBM Watson or the Cochrane, uh, digital version of Cochrane or whatever for what we do. Uh, the physician has their own uh, decision support needs uh, and also mandated requirements. Uh, as long as both the physician and the patient in that encounter, my mother shows up at that new doctor or she's being treated by that doctor, have access to in decision support that is, it's kind of like net neutrality. You know, it, you know it, it, it's as simple as that. Uh, and it's a very nice test, in my opinion, if you have to pick a single test. And then, of course, we have to deal with the digital divide. Uh, the hardware, smartphones included here, is not that expensive if you think about $100 or $200 worth a year. Of, uh, of technology compared in a country like ours where we're spending $10,000 per person a year at least on healthcare, that's a drop in the bucket and it is not a reason to shut out the undocumented or, or, or the people who can't afford it. And so this is the, the last uh, slide. Um, what can we do uh, right now in the first sort of layer beyond this stuff we've been building as reference implementations and standards and policies groups that, uh, that we work in. Um, there is now a desperate need to educate the professions. I, uh, I don't know how many people here know about the Sedona Conference. I just learned about it a few uh, months ago, but uh, they uh, drive uh, practice, uh, legal practice around technology, at least from this perspective. And uh, I'm sure there are people, I suspect there are people here that uh, know a lot more. I've had the opportunity to review and comment on a, a draft document that will come out in the next couple of months around the electronic health records. And I can talk a little bit about those issues. Um, uh, we have to have the concept that licensed professionals, physicians, have a self-sovereign identity. There is a role already underway being considered or planned at this point for a medical society, for example, or any professional society to run directories that allow the professionals to be somewhat independent or completely independent of the hospital rather than being tied to wherever they're employed. Uh, I've mentioned uh, uh, the Freedom Box, and uh, we don't have yet a project underway to add the authorization server that we're demonstrating to Freedom Box, but that certainly needs to be done support communities, and a desperate need for a business model in order to scale this. And uh, one last thing, uh, a pitch, uh, Patient Privacy Rights uh, runs a uh, health privacy summit. It's free. It's at Georgetown Law. This year it's, uh, it's uh, June 1st and 2nd, and it's streamed, uh, and it's very, very good to address some of these issues. scenario where the doctor has a clipboard um, and the patient has kind of their digital health record. And so if the, if the doctor is completing the documentation on paper, presumably we would want that information to get into whatever that personal health record application is. I'm wondering, in your vision, who is responsible for transferring that documentation from the form in which the doctor is originally reporting it to, or the clinician is originally reporting it to the digitized record if there are no uh, electronic medical records in the uh, I didn't say that there were no electronic medical records in the physician's facility, uh, but I didn't say what the answer was either, so I, that's not a criticism. Um, what, uh, what I envision is that the doctor has self-sovereign technology just like the patient does. And that gives the doctor, as, uh, as a licensed practitioner, the choice of either documenting that in their institutional, their clinic health record system, and or working directly 
signing in directly into the patient's self-sovereign health record, that, that thing that I call the personal data store in the previous slide, that, that thing that actually stores attributes. And in our model, which is called HIE of one, uh, what we actually did uh, to sort of take the step, uh, and by we I mean uh, Dr. Michael Chen, he's out in Portland, he's contributed a cloud-based free software health record meant for clinics, and we forked it. We literally took the code and said, when that physician goes from the patient list to a particular patient context, we literally switch the, the hosting hardware from what the doctor is hosting for themselves or for that clinic to the, a copy of that same record with single sign-on, with API security that's standards-based. Uh, and they're working directly in the patient's aggregated record. So in other words, the choice of how to run the physician-patient encounter sits with the physician. If they have access to an EHR that handles these tokens, these authorization tokens, and, and um, uh, then fine. Then obviously there are standards for these APIs that talk to the patient's record. Uh, and if not, they can sign in directly. Please. A couple of questions of like edge cases here. So one would be the idea of you have someone on vacation who you know falls unconscious and then gets brought to an outside hospital where they don't have, um, there's not already an access token because they haven't established care. Yeah. And you know there's possibly an emergency need to access that person's medical record to find out if they have drug drug interactions or drug allergies, uh, how do you handle that? Oh, that, uh, that w is why in that previous slide, let's see if I can put it up. That's the role of the router component, right? So um, you, when you think about uh, the answer to that question, you, you realize that you do need that patient to have a, a uh, constant presence. So the authorization server is not the mobile device. Right. Did I answer your question? Well, I guess what I'm wondering is if they haven't configured their authorization policies to allow um, automatic approval of a request from an outside hospital, for example, it seems like you're kind of out of luck, or would there be a I mean, one thing I was imagining was some sort of referral network where maybe you could get in contact with a hospital where they had established care and there was authorization or something like that. Yes. And uh, again, in, in another slide, uh, uh, I talk about registries. And one of the most uh, important registries that you want to manage through these tokens are registries of where you've had care. And uh, the, when you talk about, in terms of health information exchange, it's like the one here called the Mass Highway, or in every state, or there's probably 60 of them around the country, and big states have more than one. The single most uh, important sustainability point for these exchanges now has bubbled up to be uh, relationship locator services. So it's basically a way for the patient to say, when I visit this facility, it's okay for them to say, the registry I'm there and then the registry operates ways for physicians to subscribe mostly not for the patient's benefit mostly for the benefit of getting paid a uh, hundred dollars more or something literally uh, to subscribe to uh, notice that this patient came to the emergency room over there um, so um, you handle that but the, the point I to your deeper point when we show here on the top line a policy store. There's a role for the community, for the Free Software Foundation or EFF or patient privacy rights to put up standardized sets of policies to go along with the authorization server. We would never expect uh, uh, people to create these policies. Uh, we would only expect them to edit the policies based on their own particular situation. So there's a deep role here, I think, for uh, nonprofits, for you know, public service organizations to seed these things as policies. What do you mean by policies? I mean, I know that word. I think that you're using it to mean something different, and I'm lost when you say it. Um, 
policy, uh, th this is in the context of UMA, User Managed Access, which is work of the Kantara uh, Standards uh, Group. It doesn't really matter. And uh, what, it, uh, uh, what that set of standards does is it says it splits the interaction amongst nodes into two phases. Phase number one is like a resource registration phase. So imagine that the hospital or that lab puts up an API and says, Adrian's data uh, is available on this API. Adrian has an authorization server. And so the phase one, there is no user of the data on the scene. You've now registered that particular. And it, it's kind of like, think of it as a, as a step in when you go to a hospital and they ask you sometimes stupidly, really stupidly, to sign the notice of privacy practices. Imagine that at that point in the, in the scheme, uh, you were allowed to give them an email address that was dereferenced using Webfinger or something to your authorization server. That's the phase one of the UMA protocol. And it doesn't involve policies directly. The second phase, it, what happens is when somebody, whether it's that ambulance driver that we were just talking about or whatever, comes to access that resource. And that, what happens in this case is that that ambulance driver comes and presents credentials uh, that you trust, again, for various mechanisms. And your policies might say, if, these, if this person's credential says that they're an ambulance uh, attendant, let give them a token to that particular place where they've decided, based on looking at a registry, that I might have health records, whether it's in my personal data store or at Mass General Hospital. And that's the policy I'm talking about. OK. Another question, which is, uh, how do we distinguish between the ambulance driver of the ambulance I'm in when I'm unconscious and somebody else who works as an ambulance driver has never seen me and has been suborned to get at my data. Uh, one idea that occurs to me is if I'm carrying something like a necklace, it could be used to get access. Yes. When I'm unconscious. Yes, and actually if uh, I don't want to take the time, but if uh, if somebody, if you Google Casey Quinlan uh, QR code, uh, what will pop up at the, at the top is uh, Casey Quinlan, who is a, a colleague in the sphere of things that actually tattooed a QR code to her sternum, along with a password. And this was about five years ago or something. And uh, so there you are. Now, um, there's, there's the second piece of that which is the problem, and it's not healthcare specific, of when you have a disaster, when law enforcement or public health people come together, and you don't have an institutional context to manage that interaction, how does uh, a public health officer or a law enforcement person convince whoever's in charge of the scene that they are, have access to this? And this is a huge security issue. Uh, on a much larger scale because obviously for public safety reasons you want to have these um, special registries if you want to call them that where people are sort of sworn and go to jail if they misuse them and, and then provide distributed access to that. Yeah. And that's an ongoing problem. And in general trust cops. You have to do that and it's, but it's not a healthcare specific problem. This is a problem. Uh, there are aspects of this that involve broad use of biometrics, uh, broad access to secure elements, uh, and, uh, and blockchain technology in order to have a secure trust fabric that's not tied to any particular institution and is more resilient than a, a centralized system. So um, yes, it's not healthcare specific. That part of it is, is just, society's just going to have to figure out. May ask one more question. What do you do about the danger that somebody accessing your data with permission on a certain occasion might save a copy of that data and make it available without authorization to someone else? We don't. It's a very difficult problem. It is not a problem that even the blockchain technology, the distributed ledger technology, solves. Uh, 
uh, and uh, a lot of people have magical thinking in this area, you know, uh, that, that this will solve it. There is no, uh, there's no DRM component to what we're proposing. Uh, the only thing I can say in sort of defense of that, if you want to call it that, uh, is that when you have, when you presume a network of always-on nodes, these routers as I call them, and reasonably ro robust and redundant, the need to aggregate information or to copy information goes down. And you can actually pass laws that basically say, if we find you holding on to this information, and what's interesting is that a lot of corporations who wouldn't dream of competing on privacy, and none of them really do it, except for Apple these days, and that's a different story, uh, but nobody else competes on privacy at any scale, they're starting to realize that holding on to more data than they absolutely need is a liability. And they're coming to outfits. Yesterday I was talking to the Centers for Democracy and Technology, uh, CDT, which is 40% funded by corporate uh, interest to lobby, in effect. And they're basically saying, uh, you know, what's coming up for them that's surprising them is corporations coming to them and asking, how do we store less data? And in order for them to do that, you have to have this router component and that personal data store and that token server online so that they have access to that data and you have transparency that they've had access to the data. Uh, so uh, some, a lot of the technical elements of your talk are, are a bit foreign to me, but your first slide with your mother and the focus on the medication lists uh, are not foreign to me. Uh, so I was curious, I mean, there are at least two reasons why you would focus on medication lists. One, you want access to them, but more importantly, you want it to be accurate, and they're notoriously inaccurate. Where in the outline you've put up there does correcting records for accuracy come in? I did not specifically talk about that, but it, it basically comes in as what's called direct medicine. Uh, or concierge medicine done at scale. Um, when we are spending $10,000 a year per person, or more in the case of my mom at, at 91, uh, the idea behind, from a clinical point of view, from a medical infrastructure point of view, is that there's some amount of money, say $500 a year, that an individual wants to pay in a substitutable way for somebody, a direct medicine physician, to manage to curate that part of their record that's really important, the medication list and what the next thing to do to this patient is going to be, wherever it gets done. You know, when somebody says this patient needs X, you don't want that X to fall through the cracks because then people get sued and people get very sick or, or both. So uh, the analogy I like to use is tax, uh, paying taxes. Uh, we. Some of us basically use an accountant to do our taxes. Why? Because, it, you know, in my case, the accountant charges $500 a year for the family. If that accountant saves me $1, if I get to save 500, if I get to save $501 on, on the tax filing because he's done a, a more accurate job, I just made a dollar and I don't have to worry about the taxes. In the system, in what I would call a, fair, a system that's fair to the individuals, that, that fairness component, it would have this characteristic that the same thing that happens with your taxes where there's standardization and law about the W-9s are in this form, the 1099s are in this form, the W-2s all come out on this date. And what that does is it means that my accountant and I only spend a few dollars a year on software and collecting and aggregating authoritative information. And so all of the money to that accountant goes to a professional service at a very reasonable price. And I, I think of curating health records as that, that same model, that eventually, relative to the $10,000, you get to spend a few hundred dollars a year for the curator. And, and that saves the whole system, because obviously you don't want to ask people to pay for that out of pocket way out of proportion to what it costs. Please. It does raise the question, the tax issue, the data is yours. You, you own it. 
Let me say a you word take about responsibility. Ownership. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, no. I mean, uh, let me say a word about ownership. I use uh, people get very confused. Uh, ownership has at least three different definitions, depending on how you approach it. Uh, the way, the only way I find ownership useful in policy discussions and design of these systems is if you can delete the data or you can take it offline, then you own it. And so as you remember this model of you're only distributing access tokens and it's turtles all the way down, uh, the ownership of the data is scattered by whoever created it initially and then if they kept the copy, they, uh, and only some of the data is owned by the individual, that thing that's in the personal data store on this, uh, on this slide. Um, and so uh, by using this very strict definition of ownership, you can now layer uh, legal practice uh, on top of, uh, of the system in a fairly tractable way. It, it's a really complex issue. Um, trying to understand the incentives of, let's say, the three simple parties, the, the, the physician, the patient, and maybe the insurance companies. At the outset, it seems like everyone wants to do this, right? The, the physician obviously wants to look at the patient as a whole. But also raise a liability for him, as in reviewing all the records before he even advises the patient. The same with the insurance company. They might, of course, want to look up, did you have an accident when you were 10 year old? But also raise a liability that if they refuse it. So how do you balance this incentives? Because otherwise, I think you made a good point about the, the business need, needs to work too. Uh, so let me be the first one to say that I don't have a solution to the business model for how to bring this about at scale. Now, I would maintain to you that what we do to healthcare in this country by privatizing it and distributing it as an employer-based benefit for <coughs> half the population and a government benefit for almost the other half and then nobody, <laughs> or maybe soon nobody for, for the... Uh, 30, 40 million that are left uh, is, is just a travesty in, it, in its own right. Uh, and it's also very expensive. It's expensive for the practice that has to spend, the number I've heard is 8% of what a practice spent, never mind what's going to those insurance companies, is spent on administrative costs. And it might well be higher. Um, so the, the problem of how you get there from here, which is what I would call the business model problem, is extreme, and uh, I don't think I can even begin to have a conversation. If there are people here, policy people, uh, that understand um, that uh, better, they, they might have a, a better idea of how we fix it. Um, so I can't say anything about useful about that. Is this but a problem that has to be done? Or you don't even make inroads into it? Is it sort of like a, oh no, uh, okay. So now we get to, uh, yes, so now we get to this slide, basically. Uh, when I say legal, uh, what I'm saying is that we now have access to the technologies, particularly as distributed ledgers, as blockchains become commercialized, and particularly as medical societies start to realize that, that they are as, as a profession, they're not being well served by institutional health records. And the level of frustration on that, we won't even go there. But uh, so uh, what happens is that as we introduce this HIE of one model and, and uh, you know, and it goes from uh, reference implementation type thing to actually a pilot, what are we doing? We're basically introducing support and legal uh, legal things. There is nothing about it that doesn't allow for incremental adoption. So for example, you might have uh, uh, telemedicine be uh, the, uh, the driver for adopting that on a physician-by-physician -physician basis. You might have uh, mental health issues that are very privacy-sensitive and not well-served. Um, so there are, because the practitioners that actually manage Right, the person who signs that prescription before there was ever a hospital and EHR, they're still there. They're still responsible. As long as they meet the kind of legal requirements that are on the slide, commerce happens. And not only does commerce happen, 
but the, you eliminate the intermediary, which right now is sucking any, as much as half of the value. So for example, there was a nice article that showed that when it comes to mental health uh, uh, advice online, the, this really very sleazy intermediary that was basically acting as uh, uh, matching uh, patients with clinicians, licensed clinicians, was taking half the money and detracting value because in some cases the clinician had a professional responsibility for somebody that they would have to break anonymity, uh, you know, to, to deal with issues of uh, when do you report something, when do you do. And literally half the money in this case was being charged by the intermediary between the licensed practitioner and the patient. And the whole point of the article was in how many different ways this was a worse job than if the intermediary wasn't there. Uh, so uh, there is a huge amount of value. Now, on average, it's not going to be half, but it could well be 20%, 30%. And in a $3 billion healthcare economy, that's a lot of money. Please. Client patient in any of these. Uh, a patient who doesn't want to be involved in their health care, in their have access to their records. We, in, in the design of the, the reference implementation, the HIE of one that I talk about, we never assume that the patient is going to do anything. Uh, and that's what I meant earlier when I said you want the policies to be initialized from a place you trust. Um, you want to make sure that uh, licensed professionals are paid you know, one way or another, either annual subscription, that $500, or, uh, or on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, there is nothing about this where I assume that people will ever uh, touch their own thing. Please. Picture ethics question that maybe connects with this a little bit. So I assume that one of the implications on a system like this would that patients would have more access and control over their medical records than they currently have. Um, if they want it. Um, and so my question is, you know, to the extent that we kind of encourage patient autonomy and give them control over their records, that, that's great and I'm all for it. There's also sort of this corresponding risk that patients might go ahead and do things with their medical records that are sort of ill-advised, kind of a paternalistic risk um, that they should they make, maybe make their records available to people they shouldn't make them available to. So my question is just to what extent um, do you think we should be worried about that? Is the public kind of out of place where you think we broadly recognize privacy risks like this, or um, is there room for sort of lingering paternalistic doubt here? Uh, my, I don't think we know. I don't think anybody really knows how we scale what we're doing right now. You know, obviously the amount of health-related information from wearables, from exercise, from lab tests, from registries like the Precision Medicine Initiative that aim to collect everything from the value of social determinants of health in managing uh, access and managing policy. We have no idea of how to scale the system relative to what you're asking. Uh, but I think we have an intermediate step, which we are not doing right now, which is desperately needed, and that is transparency. Right now, when I showed that data map, uh, you know, the, the notable thing about, about it is that Whatever happens there is opaque to you. When you're dealing you know, with Apple or with Verizon or whatever, you get a text message if somebody touches your data, if somebody uses 99 cents, if somebody logs in. Uh, there is no lower bound. Uh, when it comes to something that has such a high economic value and so important in the healthcare system, people are still designing for lack of transparency. And that leads to a lot of security problems. Uh, you know, breaches are discovered six months later because there's no individual notice when somebody's API is accessed effectively. And worse than that, you cannot develop public policy if the people that care don't have the tools to know how their data is used in this environment. So um, you can cross this chasm in two steps is what I'm saying. Uh, and the first step is radical transparency, which is enabled by this ability to run an authorization server that's online all the time. 
And that is enabled by the fact that individuals have secure identities, maybe passwordless biometric sign-in that's convenient for them, uh, rather than, you see what I'm saying? So you put in as initial steps the things that give you accountability and transparency into the system, and then we will worry about scaling from that perspective. Please. Kind of business model and getting people to adopt this. So if we assume that you know physicians and, and healthcare providers or people would want to create accounts in another system to be able to log into that system to have it all centralized, healthcare providers, both people and the organizations like the hospital system, they have a lot of responsibility and legal liability to make sure that the records that they have are accurate and that they're controlling access to those records. How do you envision, and even if we assume that the patient can't update the information that's there, um, which would introduce another variable, but how do, we, how do we get healthcare providers to be okay with the fact that they're not controlling who has access to information that they're ultimately responsible for, that they can be sued for, that you know, they have to produce records of? Um, you know, it seems like a really tough sell. I think kind of in the big picture it would be great if we could have all of these, all of this information in a central repository and ensure that it was accurate and have it producible and we could take it to whatever provider. But if I'm a healthcare provider, and or more accurately, if I'm a CEO of a hospital, my worst nightmare is being responsible for a, a source of data that I don't have any control over. I don't know who else has access to. Um, yeah. I don't know how the users are being verified. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how secure it is. I don't have control over that. So how do, we, <clears throat> how do we get healthcare providers to buy into that? Because that just seems like a very, uh, something that would keep a CEO uh, up at night. Right. And so um, this, this, this becomes an interesting conversation in itself. And if we have time, we should go into it. It would take a few minutes for me to give you the specifics of how that happens. But uh, let me put it this way. Uh, I've spent five years trying to interact with the Mass Medical Society, with my committees and my task force and this and that, in order to try and unwind the elements of how you do that. And at the top level, and we are actually implementing this, both in terms of the Medical Society and in terms of the software, the free software that, that we're you know, that we're creating. And what happens is you look at that hospital exactly the way you described it as combining three different roles. And none of those three roles were there in the day of the paper prescription. And the actual model, the actual discussion of this is introduced in a paper that you can find on my, on my blog roll uh, that uh, won a, a prize this summer around blockchain health, which was a government-operated challenge. And uh, the use case in that paper is how does a physician write a digital prescription without involving a hospital? In other words, the institution, you somebody raised the issue of it's the institution is the insurance company. It's much simpler and more effective to think of the institution as being the pharmacy because the regulations are clearer to people, the use case is clearer, and it has economic, direct economic value without introducing the American problems with insurance. And so think in terms of these three roles of the hospital being combined. Number one, they're holding the health records, so they're liable for the breach. Number two, they're credentialing the physician. And number three, they are um, uh, dealing with records retention. They're, they're managing the, the legal aspects. So in other words, the profession, the, the physician, has outsourced for convenience in the way we outsource to Google for convenience our, you know, my Google Docs, these are Google Slides that we're watching. The physician for convenience has outsourced all three of these roles to the institution. And in order to achieve free and independent health records, we have to take all of those three components of the physician-employer or the physician-institution relationship and make them substitutable and separate. It's not that we build a different kind of hospital entity. It's that we explode those three roles into self-sovereign identity, which we can go into discussions, but this is basically managing identity and, and the uh, verified claims around that identity using blockchain-type technology. And we're doing that in a project called Rebooting Web of Trust, originally seated with a bunch of Department of Homeland Security model, and that's been going on for about two years. 
uh, you have the medical society managing the credentials. They're not doing the credentialing, but they become the well-known place in the state to find out whether this doctor who claims he's a doctor actually is a doctor. And then the health records remain distributed and are dealt with based on who signed whatever entry it was and where you find it by this token server. And so, in effect, you've removed the hospital and you've exploded all three of those things in standards-based way that are substitutable. Dan. Um, and may have already answered these in the two slides I missed three minutes, minutes late. Clearly, a number of points of failure replaced for hopefully graceful degradation. For example, you talk about a router that's in your house that costs hundred, two bucks. So, you know, I'm, you know, there's a meteor or a fire on the block where you live. You escape. Your router is fried, and your QR code is burnt to a crisp on your chest, and you're unconscious, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes. You know, or and you and you and you don't have your phone, et cetera, et cetera. And the other edge case is, all right, they find your records and say, ah, just take X, Y, and Z. The answer is no. It says you're supposed to take X, Y, and Z. Maybe you hadn't taken them yet for the day and it's critical, or maybe as my own records through major well-known institutions in the state show, saying he takes an X, you know, every time I say, no, I take it a few times a month when I need them or whatever, please <laughs> fix this. And so how do you, you know, there's clearly a lot of edge cases and, you know, points of vulnerability. Well, Yes, and, but you're talking about two very different things. They're both important. I raised two different okay. questions that I know. So uh, the, the first one is um, the first one is very, uh, is very straightforward. Um, and um, it, it, first of all, it's not very healthcare specific. And so the, the evidence uh, or the, the practical instantiation, which we do show on the YouTube channel, uh, HIE of One, is how do you recover access to your identity, to, you, to the private keys that you're using to sign prescriptions or to log into hospitals or directories at the medical society. And in, in our case, we're using a technology that's based on Ethereum uh, that grants a group of people, M of N type situation, that are also using this particular, and it's being standardized by the rebooting web of trust. So you're not in a walled garden. And, and so you, you as an individual define in the M of N sense a set of friends that you trust or institutions that you trust. And people have started to do this years ago with respect to blockchain wallets, for example, because you don't want to lose you know, a huge amount of money just because your thing burned down. Uh, so uh, we, are, we have implemented this kind of recovery and redundancy technology in the sense of how you sign in and what standards you use to verify your claims uh, around that. Uh, for the second part of the question, you can't have it both ways. Uh, if you're going to have self-sovereign technology you're, and you're going to have this kind of diversity in how people live, you know, people eat too much, people, you know, go to suntanning salons or whatever. Uh, you know, at some point, in order to have a resilient system, you're going to have to allow people to do what they need to do, and you're going to benefit from that diversity, uh, as opposed to the systems we have now, where we have maybe 100 million records or 200 million records breached per year, uh, maybe 100 million in healthcare alone last year. And the reason is that we have this model of a hard shell and a soft, chewy middle uh, that dates back to you know, client-server days, um, you know, it, you, can't, you can't institutionalize that second piece of what you're saying. Please. Do you have any uh, thoughts on how to prevent um, commercial interests from invading this sphere and creating essentially um, a monopoly or um, a captive market based on access to healthcare? And I'll give you, specifically, I'm thinking, you know, someone comes in and essentially takes this technology and packages up in a very nice, neat way with a clean interface, sells that to partners, and now if you want to go to any partner's healthcare hospital, you got to download the partner's app, you got to have partner box sitting on your windowsill. You know, how do you avoid that? It's, uh, I do. Uh, that's an opinion. I can't prove it. There are three elements 
that drive to adopting that. Number one is physicians or profession in general, nurses. Uh, they, uh, you know, with 21st century cures, the recent act, nurses have the ability, more responsibility for signing and documentation. That's great. They're licensed individuals. Uh, lawyers, the, the people that contribute to the policies and uh, deal with uh, making the physician-patient relationship possible, regardless of what other infrastructure is in place. And then uh, the most important piece is outfits like the pharmaceutical industry or uh, centers of excellence for like doing hips and knees, you know, here in Boston or cardiac surgery here in somewhere else. Uh, the people that are actually providing the globalized goods around healthcare, like a pharmaceutical company or a medical device company or a center of excellence, have every interest in disintermediating the, uh, the, uh, you know, the aggregators and the data brokers in the middle um, and, and going because they then share that value with the licensed professional and with the patient. Also, make the, a similar argument about traditional electronic medical records and the idea of you know institution to institution exchange. That um, there are a lot of outside interests that would benefit. I mean, I think healthcare providers, conscientious lawyers, and um, uh, anyone who benefits from lower barriers to providing quick access to their products would benefit also from electronic health uh, information exchange on the traditional institution institution model. And that has been with 20 years of trying to get those people to talk to each other. Yes. And, you know, I, I spend 90% of my life dealing with those situations. I, I think it's, I, I think what we've had is 30 to $50 billion of government meddling alone in that aspect of the market, both the EHRs and the HIEs. Uh, that's why we call our project HIE of one, Health Information Exchange of one. Uh, and that hasn't helped at all. And all it's actually done is shown the limitations, not just my mother's medication list, but uh, just in terms of the efficiency of practice, that the level of frustration of physicians now is, is incredible. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a blip. You know, it was a 10-year blip, whatever you said it was. It, it was a blip. It's going to go away. So, follow up on that, do you think it would be fair to say then that kind of but for the sunk cost and the entrenched infrastructure, this is what you're proposing here is, is a more natural outcome of how the players in this sphere interact? It, it's not only that, but I, I would say that the professions, both legal and especially medical, need to consider that if they want to add value as lawyers and doctors rather than as technicians, I use the analogy of an airline pilot. An airline pilot doesn't have a fiduciary relationship to any particular patient on that uh, person on that plane. Uh, they don't control their tools as a result. Their tools are regulated by the FAA. They're provided and bought by the airline. Uh, and nobody minds. Uh, you know, nobody complains, but there's no interaction, there's no freedom or self-sovereignty at the edge of that network for obvious reasons. Uh, that is not the case for legal or medical professions. And so um, when I put there at the top of the list, educate the professions, I think it's absolutely essential, and I don't know how long it's going to take. I, I think we've taken steps here in Massachusetts, um, and I'm trying to sort of give talks like this and, and, and organize nationwide. Um, probably have time for one final question. Anybody has a burning desire? Bill, um, Adrian, we've talked about this question before, which is where does health data intersect with housing and real estate? And I think it's worth noting that the new head of HUD is a doctor. So. Um, Somebody across town named uh, Megan Sandel talks about a housing vaccine. Can you, can you foresee a future when we can monetize personal data um, from health indicators that have implications <coughs> for real estate and bring revenue to your ecosystem you envision? That's very, it, uh, I, 
I think uh, factoring in the social determinants of health, uh, where you are, what your uh, living situation is, it becomes incredibly important as, as we go forward. And the place where this crosses into that is nobody, basically nobody is going to trust, you know, the EHR system at Mass General Hospital with the social determinants of health. It, 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 so if we as a society are going to factor in uh, social determinants of health in terms of measuring disparities, in terms of measuring quality, uh, and dealing with the actual problems that we have, there has to be another point of aggregation to, to do these things. That data, you know, you, they can think, and right now data from that implantable cardiac defibrillator does go through the vendor and then through the hospital and then maybe to the doctor and then maybe never ever to the patient themselves. And I deal with patients in like that Night Scout project where that's obviously backwards. Um, so uh, I think that's where we crossed into this. Uh, you know, think in terms of how does society gather the necessary information and provide the level of transparency for things which obviously are not going to ever go through, uh, through that hospital EHR system. I can't understand your question because it's, I can't tell what the goal is. You talk about monetizing and, well, that seems to be somebody's desire to make a profit. I generally find any uh, any statement or question that formu that's formulated with that word to be suspect, but some of the res it's from the response it sounds like you're trying to talk ab about uh, correcting some social problems that make people sick, and that seems like a thing worth doing. But I can't relate it to monetizing anything. I didn't. That's yeah. why I'm. If, if if you flip your word monetizing to saving text money, that's the heart of my question. Oh. The social good that would be achieved by a housing vaccine saves money in other What's parts What's a housing of vaccine? Well, this is what Megan Sandel talks about, um, that by addressing the social determinants of a young family's life, you may actually reduce the burden they put on the healthcare system, or an older person's life, like you're 90. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess it makes sense. Make money by saving money. We can, I think we had other ways of formulating such issues that were more straightforward in the past. Anything that gets people to pay attention is okay with me. Thank you. Thank you.